White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 516. 10, 9, 8, 7, ignition sequence started. All engines are started. We have ignition. 2, 1, 0. We have a liftoff. We have a liftoff and it's lighting up the area. It's just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center. The second five is moving off the pad. It is now clear the top. Welcome to the White Rocket Podcast, brought to you by White Rocket Entertainment in association with all of our great supporters via Patreon.com. It's one long conversation with a variety of guests about the best of popular culture. I'm Van Allen Plexico, and I'm joined for this episode by Derek Austin Johnson. Welcome aboard, Derek. Greetings, everyone. My name is Derek Austin Johnson. I am a horror writer and a critic. I used to write a uh, a film column for the uh, Hugo Award-winning SF Signal. Oh, yes. That's right. Very good. Very good. Well, I'm thrilled to have you aboard because we have a topic tonight that I'm very excited about to get into. And it kind of, it has a leg, it has, it kind of has one, one foot in the world of film and one foot in the world of history. And so, well, what are we talking about today? What are we talking about today, Derek? <laughs> We are talking about what has been called uh, the greatest movie never made. And this was uh, Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon, uh, which is a movie he planned on making sometime after uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. And uh, for various reasons, he, which we'll go over, I'm sure, well, Mm -hmm. he never really got around to it. Yeah. And then he passed away in 19, I think, 99. And so um, now the project for the last 20, 21 years has been kind of hanging in limbo. And there's, yeah, there's definitely some interesting things. There's, there's, this is cool. This is going to be a big episode because there's so many things to kind of get into, including where it stands now. So we'll talk a little bit about where that project stands at the present time as of January of 2021 when we're recording this and where it's kind of been along the way, it's kind of bumped around through development hell, like so many projects I'm excited about that never quite see the light of day. But um, let me kind of lead off with a little background of my own, and I want to get you to do the same thing, sort of. So here's how I, I, whenever I do a White Rocket show, especially with somebody I haven't done a show with before, I like to do this, how did I come to this? And how did you come to this? So here's the path I took to this topic. Okay, first, I'm a huge fan uh, and scholar to a certain degree as a history professor of Napoleon. And so back uh, 15, 20 years ago, I was actually working on my own Napoleon screenplay, but a much smaller movie than what Kubrick had in mind. I had a particular angle I wanted to do, but I wasn't really up for that kind of a job yet. I'm more of a science fiction and, and pulp writer, as most of you guys know. So doing an actual historical epic as a screenplay was was beyond me, or even as a novel. But I did, during my research, read a whole lot of books. I read, in fact, before I knew anything about this movie, that we're, or non-movie, that we're going to talk about, I did read Felix Markham's biography. I read Alex uh, Sean's biography. And there's been some others since then that are really good. Um, but I also watched every movie I could find on Napoleon, and it's interesting because he's supposedly the most 
there's supposedly there's more movies that have been made about Napoleon than any other historical figure, although Abraham Lincoln's probably close. Um, but there's supposedly more movies made about Napoleon than any other figure, and yet that's kind of mind-boggling to me because I don't think there's ever been a good movie made about Napoleon, and we'll talk about some of the near misses and some of the efforts, but I don't think there's ever been one like what Kubrick was going to do, which is just basically a flat-out biopic epic, you know. I don't think there really ever has been one that does everything he was going to do. So so I, you know, I puttered around watching all these things and reading all these things for years, and then I discovered that he had thought about making one back in 1969 after 2001, and I thought, well, gosh, it, it's too bad that didn't happen, but I guess I'll never know anything else about it. And then a couple of years ago, I found out that you could actually get they put out this uh, this publisher, I think, in Germany called Taschen, put out this giant box set. Well, there's two versions. There's a box set of little books inside of it, and then there's the one big book. And I, I ended up with the one big book. But it's got everything that they could fit in that Kubrick did from photo- uh, set, um, like uh, location scouting and photography, notes, mm-hmm. And, and the thing that intrigued me, though, the and correspondence, reproduction of his letters with Felix Markham, the historian in, at Oxford and others, but the thing that intrigued me the most is it had the script in it. And so I ended up getting that for Christmas. It was like $125. is a huge book. But I got it for Christmas a year ago, and I've read the script, and I really, really wanted to talk about it and talk about what he was going to do with it and what, you know, what we made of it and all that. So how did you... You, your your angle is more of a Kubrick angle, right? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, <clears throat> I, I became familiar with Kubrick. Probably, I think the first Kubrick movie I saw was A Clockwork Orange when I was maybe 16. But the first time I ever became associated with his name was uh, when I was 12 years old. And um, I was with some friends at a, a theater in Houston to watch um, – uh, the nude bomb, the Maxwell Smart movie. Yeah, um, yeah. The less said of that, the better, of course. <laughs> um, and the projectionist had the either the sense or the nonsense to put in front of that the trailer for The Shining, um, which proceeded to. It's less than two minutes long, but it proceeded to terrify the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> And uh, to this day, I can't remember a single thing that happens in the nude bomb. And, and to be fair, nobody else can either. <laughs> no. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I anytime I want to, you know, just send chills down my spine and I, you know, I don't want to crack open a book and I don't want to w- turn on the television, I'll just watch that YouTube video. And, uh, and that pretty much suffices. But I started becoming interested in Kubrick in the 19, yeah, about uh, about my senior year of college, I actually not college, uh, high school, I started becoming interested in filmmakers in a fairly systematic way. Um, you know, I looked at a lot of you know the people who were considered the greats. You know, um, you know Kurosawa, Altman, uh, Coppola, but Kubrick was the one who really you know just seemed to speak to me for whatever reason. Um, you know, I. I became obsessed with his sort of zero point shots. I became really fascinated by how he viewed the world. And, um, and, and I started to get the idea, you know, Truffaut's idea of the, um, of the auteur. I, I don't necessarily believe auteur theory, but if anybody fits it, Kubrick does, mm-hmm. which led me to, you know, 
the fact that I was also I was a huge science fiction fan, and I've I've written science fiction on occasion. Um, but uh, you know, one of if you're a science if you're a science fiction person, you become associated with a Clockwork Orange two thousand one uh, to a certain extent, Doctor Strangelove, and I really wanted to see his uh, movie AI, which was he which was another mm-hmm. great movie that was almost never made. Um, he, he had that kicking around for years and then it finally went to Spielberg when, uh, when Kubrick passed away. So I became fascinated by the movies he never got to make, like the Aryan papers. Uh, there was another movie he wanted to make based on a Jim Thompson novel and the name escapes me now. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, when you, when I found out what he was trying to do for Napoleon, really my jaw sort of dropped, um, you know the the fact that he wanted to make a you know a three hour epic and not just make this, but he his I think his response was I want to do this right. So he would you know so that the sheer amount of research that he did, the sheer amount of detail oh. that he underwent, uh, you know, even so far as to sending one of his um one of his assistants out to uh, Belgium to collect soil samples. Um, <laughs> You know, to to ensure that he got the you know the the texture of everything right, <laughs> that really just kind of blew my mind. You know, we think of Kubrick and you know we hear all these stories and we go, well, of course he would do something like that. But to me, that's still mind boggling. And the other thing about that is that I lament the fact that this movie was never made. But I also am. But it feels it feels like if you know if, if the, the multiverse theory holds any weight. We're probably better off in this, living in this universe because even though we never, we don't get to see Napoleon, we do get a Clockwork Orange and we do get Barry Lyndon. Um, you know, without you know, and if had he made Napoleon, he may not have gotten to do that. Additionally, well, yeah, there's a there's another point I want to I want to come to, but I'll I'll come to that in a little bit. So. No, that's that's a good point. And that's true. You know, speaking of the research and everything in that big Toshin book on this movie. Or non, I keep wanting to call it a movie, but it's really a non-movie. Like the Defenders are a non-team. This is like a non-movie. Um, exactly. There are pictures in one chapter of this giant wooden cabinet, and in mm-hmm. it, he had graduate students go out and research everything that Napoleon, Josephine, and maybe some other characters did every day. And so you can open up the drawers on this cabinet and pull out index cards by person. And by year and by day. So, like, you could pull out a card and it says Josephine traveled to Malmaison to visit her, you know, you know, something like that. And it's for everything that they did. It's mind-boggling. Yeah. The amount, I, I was reading a quote that said that, that, that he loved his pre-production and research and he loved editing. Filming the movies was a necessary evil in the middle of the things he liked to do. <laughs> Right, that's that's not surprising, and and you know he it, it really does sort of show up in you know how he cuts everything, how it just and not just uh, what he wanted to do for Napoleon, but even in something like The Shining, uh, where he took several hours of 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 camera footage uh, of helicopter footage of the lakes trying to get to the Overlook. One of my favorite stories of all time was when uh, Ridley Scott was making Blade Runner and needed to have a, have a happy ending per the studio. And they asked Kubrick if he had any footage uh, for, you know, lying around that they could use. And he said, yeah, sure. Not realizing that he had like 10 hours of footage or something <laughs> like that. 
<laughs> Do, does he have any footage lying around? Come on. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> it is kind of funny, though, to ask him for, a, for something to do with an ending of a movie when you realize what they had to go through to get the ending of 2001 A Space Odyssey. And it's like, man, I mean. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's another story yeah. for another day. Well, you and I should have a conversation <laughs> about that movie, too. John, um, Mark Buskett and I had, did a show on 2001 and 2010 a couple of years ago that's on our um it's in our feed for this show, um, so I'll right. refer folks to that. But we should talk about it too. All right. Well, I want to. Yeah. I want to first talk about. Um, we got several topics to hit here. One of them I want to talk about very quickly is earlier movies of note. <clears throat> now I'm not sure how many of these you are familiar with. If if I'll go through them very quickly, unless you have something to say about them. But um, okay, the first one everybody talks about is Abel Gantz's Napoleon the Silent Movie back in the 1920s. I have I had that on VHS several years ago. I watched it all the way through twice, and I mean. It's one of those things where, for what it is, it is this amazing masterpiece, and people praise it to the high heavens. Kubrick hated it because he thought, you know, he looked at it as, how would this compare to a movie today? Well, it doesn't, and so it's not any good, and so I want to make, you know, a 1969 movie instead of a 1927 movie. But the thing about Gantz is, apparently, he didn't know much about editing because the movie's over three hours long, and it only gets (laughs) Napoleon to the Italian campaign before he even becomes a leader of France. He's not even right. first consul yet, much less emperor. I think he was going to do like a series of three-hour movies. He only did the one. So it's this super comprehensive three-hour look at like his childhood and the early years of the revolution, and it just ends. So yeah. it looks neat, but, I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, uh, another yeah. one another one I want to mention that people don't really know much about is Marlon Brando played Napoleon in Desiree, I guess in the 50s or 60s. Right. And that one's really, it's really more about this lady Desiree that he had a fling with. There were plenty of women that Napoleon had flings with. And she, I think, right. ends up marrying one of his marshals and going off to be queen of Sweden or something. Um, because right. one of his marshals ends up becoming chosen to be the new king of Sweden, which is really strange. So that's an interesting yeah. movie. But again, Brando is a good old Napoleon, but I prefer the young Napoleon. And I, don't, I would argue there's, other than Gantz, there's never been a good young Napoleon movie made. They always, they always focus on Napoleon toward the end of his life when he's in his 50s and kind of broken down, overweight and everything. They never really show like the, right. I call it like the young Elvis Napoleon in the black leather versus the old Elvis Napoleon in the white rhinestones at Vegas. You know what I mean? <laughs> We always Absolutely. see the Absolutely. we always see the Napoleon that would be at Vegas in the rhinestones with the big gold sunglasses. We never see the Napoleon that would be like doing the jailhouse rock, you know. So, but anyway, it's easy. Well, it's easier to poke fun at 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 at, at, yeah. at fat Napoleon. Um, it is in large part, you know. I mean, when you see him in, uh, you know, uh, either Time Bandits or Bill and Ted's Excellent <laughs> Adventure. Yeah. Yes, I'm referencing those in terms of Kubrick. Um, that's that's really the, the the I think that's the view that so many people have now. Not the you know not not the rock star Napoleon. Derek, so. Derek, do you know who played him in um, Bruce Campbell's short-lived uh, TV show uh, Jack of All Trades? I do not. Okay, we we had a, actually a half of a panel at DragonCon a couple of years ago just on this show, and I was on the panel, and I was just right. so I was I was there just to be offended about this half heartedly. Okay, so Bruce Campbell did a TV show for about a year, 
where he was okay. – Th- Thomas Jefferson sent him to this island in the South Pacific as a secret agent to help this gorgeous, blonde, British secret agent. The two of them teamed up against the evil French you know, secret agents that ran the island. And Napoleon mm-hmm. came to visit in one episode, and it was Vern Troyer, mini-me. No. <laughs> and I was oh, just no. like, oh, no. No, 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 no. <sighs> I mean, they're just like – they're jumping on the whole he was short. So instead of like 5'4", yeah. he was like 3'4". You know, I just, oh, uh, I love that oh. show, but that really made me mad, so. <laughs> as, as it should. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. I, that's really at the, the ultimate right there. And I hear people now saying, oh, you know, Danny DeVito should have played. I'm like, no, Danny DeVito should have no. This is a guy that was one of the greatest figures, good or bad. I mean, and he had good and bad in him, I think. We could talk about that. Sure, but, yeah. Um. But I mean, he wasn't a cartoon character at all. He was he was like yeah. the modern Caesar or something. Not uh, I just don't get it. Not people, the penguin. No, yeah. no. People just have this they have a cartoon image of him because they don't know history, you yeah. know? So Yeah. Well, a couple other movies I'll mention real quick because a couple of them are actually pretty significant. Um the other one that's really important, nineteen seventy, uh Dino De Laurentiis, who has ruined plenty of franchises by making a crappy other version of him. Uh, for example, yes. he did Orca against Jaws, you know. Well, he <laughs> he um, he did uh, a movie with Rod Steiger playing older Napoleon called Waterloo. And yeah. this was basically a giant horse opera, as they call it, where like the East German army or something played the cavalry. <laughs> and they had, it was mostly just like it's two. I've watched it a couple of times, but it's it's mostly two hours of Rod Steiger yelling while the guys on horses ride around and the cannons fire. There's not a lot of character going on in it, and it was a bomb, and it pretty much sank this movie we we're talking about. So more about that one. There's two other things I got to mention real quick. 2002, the French did a miniseries uh, with Christian Clavier and. Um, I can't think of her name at the minute. I have the notes later on. Uh, oh, Isabella Rossellini, who was perfect. Yes. Great casting as Josephine, called Napoleon. Yeah. This was the most expensive TV miniseries ever made, but it wasn't a movie. It was like an eight-hour miniseries, and it cost $47 million, and that was almost 20 years ago. It's it's not right. bad, but again, he's not a young Napoleon. He's an older guy, and you know, it's, it's about the best. I would say it's probably the best thing that's been done yet to me. And sure. then... And then lastly, coming up, and this is huge because this could affect what happens to Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon in the future, is that, I don't know if you've heard about this, Ridley Scott's kit bag. Are you familiar with this? I'm familiar with this vaguely, yeah. So um, he's covering, it sounds like he's covering certain aspects of Napoleon, but I don't remember, that's the extent of it, unfortunately. So. Yeah, there's some quote about every soldier has an emperor's staff in his soldier's kit bag, is the quote, something like yeah. that. And it's going to star Joaquin Phoenix as Napoleon, which I'm like, yeah, they could have done better, but that's not okay. that's not horrible. It's not horrible. He's a good actor. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of got the look. Um, sure. That's, that's probably two more movies down the line for Ridley Scott, though, so it'll probably be another four or five six years before that even comes out, before it's even filmed. But if that's yeah. coming along, you could see that pulling another Waterloo Rod Steiger on this project. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, if memory serves the the current 
holder of the project is Steven Spielberg, and he's mm-hmm. got um, uh, Carrie Fukunaga mm-hmm. uh, wanting to direct. He wants Carrie Fukunaga to direct it, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, originally it was going to be oh. Baz Luhrmann, <laughs> and then they changed. Oh, it. yeah, that would have been odd. And then they changed. Would have been a glorious mess, but yeah, (laughs) it would have. And they changed to Fukunaga, but that was right before he got the James Bond gig, and we still haven't even got that movie because of the coronavirus. So we're waiting on Fukunaga's James Bond movie. We we know he's good though. I believe he did the first season of True Detective on HBO, which was a really good. I think that's what he's he known did, for. Yeah. yeah. So he's he did. So so I'll follow him for that alone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and I'm hoping this will be a good uh, James Bond movie. We'll probably do old shows on that later. But anyway, so sure. all right, so let's go back now to and we'll we'll hit on those again as we go along. But I want to go back. Uh, Kubrick decides to make this movie. Does tons of research as we talked about. What did you think about the cast? He initially wanted David Hemmings and Aubrey Hepburn. I love Audrey Hepburn. I think she would have been perfect. She was the Isabella Rosalini yeah. of her day. You know, you want the the cute little brunette with short hair kind of thing, and she'd have been good. I don't know yeah. David Hemmings from from anybody. And then he right. dropped out, and it was going to be Jack Nicholson. So, what do you make of all that? Um, actually, of the two, um, I would have probably preferred Hemmings. I'd seen Hemmings in a uh, there's a thriller called Blow Up, where he plays a photographer who may or may not have witnessed a murder mm. uh, that was really popular in the uh, in the 1960s. Uh, has elements of um, of, a, of a Godard movie in some cases. Okay. He was also in uh, Dario Argento's uh, Giallo Profondo Rosso. Um, which is, you know, sort of for me the gold standard of uh, of Italian horror cinema. Interesting. Um, yeah, he's 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 wide eyed. He, as uh, as my wife once said, he has Napoleon eyes. He has kind of that that look that you could associate with um, uh, late eighteenth and early nineteenth century. Um, hmm. He would have been he would have been interesting uh, for that to say the least. Nicholson, believe it or not, I can actually see. Um, when we think of Nicholson today, we think of uh, Fat Elvis Nicholson. Yeah. We see, yeah, <laughs> you know, we, he's he's a he's he's the parody that you see in in Tim Burton's Batman. Uh, he's the guy we you know we think of as the devil and the witches of Eastwick, you know, and and so on and so forth. We forget the work he did in Five Easy Pieces and Easy Rider and uh, and some of these other things that came Chinatown. Um, he would have he would have been an an interesting choice for that. Uh, probably w- that probably would have changed his own career trajectory uh, because like he after that uh, Nicholson wouldn't be into in consideration for much else until he uh, until he made The Shining with Kubrick. Mm-hmm. It would have been interesting. I but it's harder for me to see Nicholson than it is to see Hemmings, which just seems like a natural fit. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I agree with you completely that the Chinatown and before Nicholson is different from the cartoon character he kind of made himself into later. But I still, yeah. I still don't. <clears throat> I still think it takes too much away from actual Napoleon and turns him into a character because just that's just how I think of yeah. Jack Nicholson acting. So, well, anyway, yeah. um, the other person that was important I mentioned is Felix Markham, who corresponded with um, Kubrick quite often. It's funny, it, it says in the book that as many as two or three times a day, 
Kubrick would type up a letter to Markham and fire it off to Oxford, um, in Oxford University in England, asking him just like he'd think of something. You know, today he'd send an email or call him up on the phone, probably more likely. Yeah. But he just wrote all these letters. There was just a steady stream going in both directions where he would say, he'd say something like, Professor Markham, uh, if Napoleon met the, the czar of Russia's son, what would he call him? And then Mark right. would write him a letter back and say he would address him as Royal Prince or something, you know. And then and then you know Kubrick would be like, uh, if Napoleon ate breakfast, what would he have with his egg? You know, he just like little things like that. He was constantly writing back and forth. So I have I have a couple of books on Napoleon by Markham, and he's he's certainly of the old school of Napoleon. That Napoleon was a fascinating figure, but ultimately kind of a villain. Um, right. By the way, if you like Napoleon and you don't and you aren't aware of it, there's a book I believe it's by Andy Roberts. Uh, the the a biography of Napoleon came out in the last five years by Andy Roberts, who's British. He's British, and yet despite that, he is he's more positive toward Napoleon than any other biographer I, I can remember. Like Alan oh, Shome, yeah, Alan Shome's book from about twenty years ago is really really popular, really good too. But Shome really basically just makes him out like a Bond villain. You know, he he did this right. bad, he killed these people, he betrayed these people. But Andy Roberts is the one that. And this is just a quick aside. There was a there they did an, they did an Oxford debate between him and another Napoleon scholar, and you know at the end of those things after they both present their cases, the audience votes on who won. And the, mm-hmm. the the question they were debating was because the name of his the name of Robert's book in England is Napoleon the Great because you know Napoleon wanted to be called he wanted to be remembered as Napoleon the Great like Alexander the Great right exactly and yeah. and 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 Shaum says you know history has not chosen to give him that title right. um, whereas so Roberts wrote the book called it Napoleon the Great. And then argue in, in in America, it's not called that because we don't get the significance. But the British totally understand why that's a that's a provocative. That's basically what we'd say trolling. You know, calling that book in Britain, calling that book Napoleon the Great is trolling. Totally. Yes. It's like if you published a book in about ten years and called it Donald Trump the Great, you're totally trolling the American audience, right? Other countries might Absolutely. not. Absolutely. Okay. So again, not not going into that. I'm just that's just an example, right? So. So, right, exactly. So he they had this debate, and at the end of the debate, the British audience there voted for Roberts that he should be called Napoleon the Great. So <laughs> it's mind blowing. Yes. It's a it's it's it basically argues that the British kept screwing with him. And when we, you know, when we when we think of all these wars that he allegedly started, it was really the British starting them, him kind of playing oh, defense, and then he gets blamed for it. Yeah. So I recommend that book if you like Napoleon and want to read an actually sort of sympathetic view of him. It's it's just called Napoleon I'm, in the United States. No, I'm on board, absolutely. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's cool. Okay, so why do you suppose, just why do you think, I, don't, I have ideas, but, you know, he had just done 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was not really a character, I guess the only really, can I argue the only really distinct character in all of 2001 is the computer, HAL 9000? Yeah, that's. I, I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Everybody else is just uh, kind I mean, of there. Well, I, I, and you know, you could argue that uh, the you know the human race itself is the is the central character of yeah. two thousand and one. That's fair. But you know, it's hard to make you know an entire species you know a single character <laughs> and you know David Bowman. I, I mean, that's that's a hard sell. 
mm. you know, especially when he's as personality free, you know, <laughs> in that movie as anything. So, so, it, it, but you know, why would Kubrick want to make a movie about Napoleon? I mean, it's funny. Napoleon is, you know, is, is inherently fascinating. Um, you know, he, he Kubrick was a chess player and as a consequence, I think he loved a mind that could, that could grasp, uh, both strategy and tactics. Um, he, 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 he was fascinated by, by these kinds of subjects. The, the key thing about Napoleon as well is that as brilliant as he was, he was also, um, he, he, he was really in, I don't want to say he's a tragic figure, but he is very, very much a, um, uh, a, a figure who cannot uh, control, he cannot see his own weaknesses. Hmm. Um, and as a consequence, it's, you know, a lot of his own impulsiveness ultimately winds up doing him in. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think know. that's, that's good. Yeah. So, so it's, it, he, yeah, he's, he's this great, huge, larger than life figure but yet with deep flaws and ultimately a tragic end. You know, I guess that's yeah. that's always to me been one of the challenges of telling his story is that the ending is kind of a downer. In fact, I'm going to argue as we go along here that I think that the approach that, you know, Kubrick took the approach of you ended on a downer. The the script, yeah. the Kubrick script basically ends with Napoleon dying and there's this you know, you can go read it. It's online. It's in this book, but it ends with basically Napoleon dying at 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 uh, Saint Helena, and then you see a picture. You, you see his mom sitting there, Mom, Mama Mare, right. they called her, sitting there with his teddy bear from when he was a baby, and she's crying. And that's the end. So kind of a yeah. downer. I would have argued that the two examples, and and one of these already existed at this time that he was going to make it. He didn't have. He had one example. He didn't have both. But Lawrence of Arabia and Gandhi, and I mean. Attenborough in Gandhi totally, I won't say rips off, totally copies David Lean's approach Mm -hmm. in Lawrence of Arabia, which is you start with the death and then everything else in the movie is a back, is a a flashback and you end on a high note, more or less, right? Right. Or or you, you end on a high note and then you have a kind of a coda, which is reminding you that he dies. But you don't yeah. make the last whole sequence of the movie about him dying. You put that at the beginning, and then you say, how did it come to this? And you start at the beginning then. So, you know, Lawrence right. of Arabia begins with the motorcycle wreck and then goes back to him in World War I. Gandhi starts with him being shot and then goes back to the train, the train in, in South Africa. So yeah. I would have suggested they start on St. Helena. Uh-huh. And then as he's lying there in his fever dream, you know— in his last minutes, he thinks back to, and I wouldn't have spent nearly as much time on his child. I know, see, this is the thing. Everybody loves Napoleon's childhood when they do these stories because it's, you know, it shows that he was commanding. He organized snowball fights with the other boys and all this. But yeah, I think you can cover that in five minutes and you really need to get on to him being a, a, an officer in the French military in the revolution pretty quick. Do you, do you have yeah. any thoughts on that or what? Yeah, I mean... It's funny. Um, the ending has not bothered me as such, and I think because you know we already had some distance uh, with the uh, with with two separate uh, voiceover narrators, both Napoleon and the uh, and the unnamed narrator himself. Yeah. Um, I, you know, and it it harkens to me back to um, Warren Beatty's movie Reds, 
which uh, is interspersed with uh, interviews uh, with people who knew um, uh, John Reed and Louise Bryant uh, interspersed throughout. Um, Having said that, uh, for me, reading the uh, so, so I, I think just from a, I, I see your point with, uh, you know, starting at the end and then working and then working from the beginning. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's definitely a, a good approach to it. Um, it also harkens back to Citizen Kane, which is how yeah. all of that came to pass. That's true. Now, having said that, I do agree completely that the, the, the stuff about his childhood is probably the weakest portion of the screenplay for me. Um, it's. I, I don't think it adds a. I don't think it adds a lot. I don't think it's. Uh, I, I don't think it's nearly as concise as say uh, when he's in. Uh, as when he's in Paris in the uh, in the eighteen nineties, not eighteen nineties, seventeen nineties. Yeah, me. yeah, yeah. That's. I, I feel like that's when his story really gets going. I mean, it's yeah. all. It's almost like we're. <laughs> it's funny. It's I almost compare it to Spider Man. Like. We don't need to see the origin again. Just get on to his adventures, you know, kind of like they did in Homecoming. Yeah. <laughs> um, Napoleon Homecoming. Um, okay, so I talked yeah. a little bit about uh, the, the Rod Steiger Waterloo came along, was a bomb, and kind of killed things. We covered that a little bit already. But I was just saying, I was just thinking, I noticed, I did a little research and found out that MGM had just been taken over by new owners. It's, it's, it's kind of like Kubrick's Napoleon was almost like uh, what almost happened with... Uh, with John Carter of Mars, the movie, which is that the studio head changes while they're making it or about to make it. And it kind of flops. The the difference is they actually made John Carter and then it flopped, whereas they didn't even make, but it was the same exact reason, which is the leaders change and they don't have the same priorities, the same interests, and they don't want to spend the money. But I was going to point out, I'm I'm glad that in, uh, in Vegas heist, I actually robbed two Vegas casinos in the sixties because they needed it because (laughs) Because MGM, the, the quote was that MGM's new owners were more focused on building casinos than they were making big movies by 1970. So, um, so I'm glad I knocked over a couple yeah. of them. <laughs> I could have given the money hey, to, you know, to, to Cooper. Yeah, I mean, to hell with them that way. Well, it's interesting <laughs> to me, too. Um, you know, Kubrick's fascinated by these brilliant but, uh, you know, but ultimately damaged and tragic um, people. And... One of the things I keep running through in my head is, you know, what if um, what if the studio, through its own machinations, wound up saving Kubrick by not sinking a ton of money into um, into Napoleon yeah. and, and winding and winding up ultimately saving him from himself? You know, That's that, a good that point. would have been the bitterest I- irony, I think. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. I think that he, once he'd put that much work into it, he was determined to make it, and I agree, it could have been a failure and and uh, and and hurt him from making things afterward. I I, I agree. Well, because I want to talk about the movie itself, but um, but yeah, we um, let's see, we talked about that uh, that that Spielberg has the rights now, but. I'm not sure how much that really matters, though, because for one thing, it's just a universal story. It's just they have the rights to that particular yeah. version. But I don't think I don't think that Spielberg or or Fukunawa or whoever Fukunaga would even do this version anymore. Because I want to I want to dig into this actual screenplay in just a second. But first, I mentioned that book, um, yeah. and it's out there, so people can look at what was going to be. You can draw your own conclusion here. 
Um, they were going to do in, in 2016. They announced that H that Kubrick would. I mean that uh, that that Spielberg would produce and Fukunaga would direct an HBO miniseries based on this screenplay. And I don't know that that would have worked. So let's. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this screenplay and this and this approach sure. to doing the movie. So. I, Here's here is my quick. Th- I'm gonna just throw out some points, and then I'll let you throw out yours and react and however you want. Now, you know, sure. they say they don't make movies this way anymore, and I mean literally, they don't make movies this way anymore because I don't think this kind of movie would work anymore. This movie is completely linear, right? Mo- everything yes. today has to be so fancy. In fact, I've complained online much recently about everything has to be too complicated. We're currently watching the new version of the stand miniseries. And I'm like, the screenwriters of this just wanted to show off, look how many flashbacks of flashbacks of flashbacks we can do. Nothing is linear anymore. Well, on the other hand, this movie is just ultra linear. This movie reads a lot like a documentary. It's, it's like ABCD, you know, to Z. Um, it has yeah. extensive voiceover narration. You never, you know, you never hear anything like that in movies anymore. Um, I, I can't imagine them doing a movie with with where voiceover narration has to carry the the the, the plot anymore. I, I I honestly think, on the one hand, and this is what I really want to get from you about this. On the one hand, I think they'd have to totally rewrite this screenplay anyway, and maybe they would write it into what yeah. you know what uh, Ridley Scott's going to do. But on the other hand, I think that this particular aspect of Stanley Kubrick's mov- movies it fits because. He comes up with interesting ways of filming things, but honestly, a lot of his things are very static. A lot of his movies, yeah. it's like his camera is nailed down and things just happen like they're on a stage. Am I completely off base here? Not quite. I mean, he does have some panning shots. He does have some you know, tracking shots and, and that sort of thing. Having said that... Uh, in many of these movies, and yeah, you know, and I'm thinking just off the top of my head of uh, Doctor Strangelove and Barry Lyndon. Hmm. Uh, there, you know, Doctor Strangelove opens with a voiceover narration. His first movie, Fear and Desire, opens with a voiceover narration. Okay. Um, and uh, and voiceover narration is used throughout uh, Barry Lyndon. All of these movies. Uh, and I'm I'm trying to think back. You know, practically everything Kubrick has ever done is linear. It is it is mm-hmm. you know we have a starting point here, we have an ending point here. Um, he does not he he's not even remotely trying to Tarantino anything up. Right. Where you have flashbacks within flashbacks within yeah. flashbacks. The only time I think he has ever done something even remotely like that is in A Clockwork Orange, where Alex is listening to Beethoven as he's going to bed and he has all of these fantasy images running through, uh, running through his head. Um, that's on the one hand that makes Kubrick a little more accessible than I think a lot of people really realize. Yes. It also makes his work that, that also is one of his, if you're looking at his, at his movies as a progression, it is probably one of the weakest aspects because even though he takes a huge number of chances with his actors, with his camera work, with his, um, with uh, the, the 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 very making of his movies, there's everything is actually he doesn't take any chances with narrative form whatsoever. Yes, that's what I'm. Yeah, can I can I? That's what I'm getting at is that I feel like the 
I don't know. I don't know if I want to say the weakest, maybe the most pedestrian or the most standard. Yeah. I don't know the word I'm looking for, but that's the part of his filmmaking that to me is not what he, it, it's, it's not his, his revelation on the movie scene in the movie world is not the structure of the story. That's like, to me, the least right. revolutionary thing he does. Right. No. And, and I'd agree with that. And okay. that's, and what's funny is that that is universal. I can't think of a single yeah. uh, Kubrick movie that uses a flashback. Um, I, I can think of something like say eyes wide shut where you have some inter Spursing of um, of Tom Cruise thinking of uh, Nicole Kidman and that sailor, but uh, for the most part, he does not he does not engage in the mental life of these characters at all. He doesn't he doesn't he he, he has no interest in trying to just dig under that surface. Right. So yeah, that's that's it. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to get at here is, and I'm just doing a very poor job of enunciating it in actual words. But you totally get it, right? And you're describing <laughs> it much better than me. Is that yeah? It just seems to me. I know he does cool things with movement, with camera, and all that. But it just seems like a lot of his movies, they're not. And 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 for somebody that's known for editing, there 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 are. I'll put it this way: he makes movies that would make my daughter fall asleep. And and I'm I'm not yeah. here to bury him. I'm here to praise him. Okay. But I'm, but, but they're, and I don't want to say plotting because they're good, they're great. But yeah. the, but the pacing and the and the shots to me in all of his movies, you just have to have patience. It's not a, it's not a rock music video. You know what I mean? It's it's true. Long, steady. You're you're moving in on something. You're looking at it. You're observing it as it happens. But it's the camera's not sideways. You know, it's not like Batman and Robin. The camera's not steady cam <laughs> jumping around handheld. You know, it's everything is 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 very. Um, again, I can't think of the words I want to use to describe it. And I should have put some more thought in this beforehand. But you used you used you used the word static. It's not quite static. It's not right. Dark. He's not Tarkovsky where. Um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, full disclosure, I love Tarkovsky, but, you know, you want to talk about watching paint dry. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, it's watching paint dry in some cases. Yeah. But, um, but you know, it, it's, I, I think one of the keys is that Kubrick was always sort of, his attitude was always keep it as simple as possible. Mm. You know, don't try to make everything complex, you know, let's get from here to here. Um and you know that kind of, and i think that's very obvious first of all it's very obvious in his, in just his sheer storytelling you know you use the word pedestrian i think that's you know on a on a very dry level i think that's apt um but it also works in terms of his camera movement how he approaches everything beautiful shots yes. but he's not he's not exactly trying to um He's not exactly trying to use a Michael Bay approach in getting there. Exactly. And, and you know, if again, to kind of just quickly reference another one, if you think about 2001, there's lots of mystery and, and enigma going on there, and yet none of it is in how it's played out. We see everything like it's a doc. Again, we see every... He, he makes movies like they're documentaries almost. It's all just right there in front of yeah. us. The mystery is behind the motivations of everybody, you know, the mystery exactly. is behind everything, but we see the facade. We see the front of it plain and clear. There's no like fooling you with the story structure or anything, you know? Right. So, okay. Well, yeah. um, 
I'm glad I'm not just like imagining all that. So I would have. So again, I think this would have been a very expensive, basically stage play in a way. I think it would have been. It yeah. would have been like a big documentary and a gorgeous one, a sumptuous yeah. one, but but very much of a, like a documentary. Um, and I and I, and here's the interesting thing too. If you read the screenplay, he he really tries to include everything and yet get it all in in about two and a half hours, which means that it's it jumps from scene to scene to scene to scene. So while it's a very sort of slow-moving documentary on the one hand, on the other hand, it actually moves very quickly. The scenes are I – don't, I don't think there's probably a single scene in it that's more than two pages long, two or three, two or three pages that's, at most. That's true, and that's actually one of the biggest weaknesses of the screenplay is that it's pretty episodic. Yes. Um, you know, for, 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 all of, you know, for all of the detail that's crammed in, number one, it's never boring. No, um, but it's also, you know, I hate the term character arc, but it doesn't, you know, <laughs> it doesn't feel natural. It feels very clipped. Um, and I, and I, you know, we were talking about the fact that, um, you know, the studio heads, you know, may have saved Kubrick from himself in this case. Um, I can see him spending, you know, huge amounts of money on a single set when he doesn't need to do that. Um, mm. you know, especially if you're only going to devote two to three minutes tops on a single scene. Yeah, so. I agree. I, yeah, totally. I can, and I can see that several times over. And, and here's yeah. one of the things too, I wanted to, there's another big thing I wanted to talk with you about real quick is as I read through the script, there are things I was expecting would be big set pieces, you know, like if it was a musical, mm-hmm. the big showstoppers, right? That, yeah. that barely get a couple of pages. And there, and I'll yeah. give you a couple of examples. And there's other stuff that's included for two or three pages. And I'm like, well, why did he even put that in, in there? And, and, and meanwhile, while you're getting two or three pages on like the czar of Russia, I'm not learning yeah. why I should care about Josephine. She's like a mannequin. Yeah. So yeah. I'm I'm his his choice of what to emphasize and what to kind of gloss over or leave out entirely is surprised me. And I'll let me give you one big example because I've always said if there was a great great Napoleon movie made that kind of showed the course of his career, the one scene I really want everybody's like, oh, we got to do Austerlitz, the great battle, you know, or we got to do the, you know, of course there's the scene where he comes, you know, he's left Elba and the soldiers come to to greet him and he to arrest him and he's, you know, he turns him to his side and all that. But the one mm-hmm. scene I've always thought would be so cinematic is the St. Cloud Senate scene where he's, yeah. it's, it's the coup, it's the Brumier coup. And he's got an army yeah. outside the Senate building way out at St. Cloud in the suburbs. And right. the idea is they're there. They're supposed to be there to protect the legislature. Yeah. But when he realizes he's about to be outlawed, which means, you know, turned into a criminal. He goes yeah. inside there with the soldiers, bayonets fixed, mm-hmm. and and the senators dive out the window in these togas, and their togas <laughs> get caught in the bushes, and you got these seventy-year-old men senators running down the road naked, while French yeah. soldiers with bayonets. That should be like a showstopper moment, and he gives it about a half a page. Yeah. So yeah. that's. That's the most frustrating aspect for me is that there is a lot of attention, and I feel like he's trying to do too much. He wants yes. to present everything. Yes. And while I, I respect anybody for wanting to do that, um, it also makes the focus a bit diffuse. 
Yes. Because we don't know what the most important parts of the movie actually are. So. Yeah, that's a good point. When you show a little bit of everything, you're not really saying anything is particularly important. Yeah. I hadn't thought about yeah. it that way, but that's a good point. Yeah, and, and you know, and I think if he had stuck to, if he wanted to con- focus on his relationship with Josephine, that could be, that could have been done very well, and I think it could have been a much richer picture. Yeah. If he wanted the show-stopping, um, you know, spectacle, he could have focused on that, and that would have been fantastic. By trying to, you know, by trying to eat his cake and have it too, he's he's not really satisfied with either, I think. Yeah. And here's the interesting thing, too. I noticed it never mentions Waterloo by name. He actually mentions Quatre Bras. I can't, I'm not very good. I ain't too good at the French, okay? But he mentions (laughs) Quatre Bras. He mentions Ligny. He mentions the other little battles before the main Waterloo battle, but he never actually says Waterloo. And I was wondering if that was because the movie Waterloo came out and he felt like he didn't need to reference the other movie (laughs) title. So you never see the word Waterloo in the movie script. That blew my mind. I mean, how do you do a Napoleon uh, movie and never mention Waterloo? I mean, it shows it. Yeah. But he never mentions it. I, I mean, you know, in, and that that's actually a good point with that as well. Um, you know, Kubrick was caught. You know, we, we think of Kubrick as being a recluse. He was never, at, you know, he wasn't a, you know, a mad genius, you know, sort of hammering away at, you know, whatever in a, in a mansion. I mean, he was, but, you know, he was actually a lot more gregarious than that. And he was also a lot more cognizant of uh, the of what was happening in the world. So he probably knew that, you know, Waterloo was tanking yeah, and, or, or was going to tank. And he probably wanted to put some distance between his movie and, uh, and De Laurentiis's. So, and I got to tell you, I, I mentioned one earlier, but there's just so many examples. If you like get on IMDb and look up, you know, De Laurentiis's movies, it's like every time a, a big movie was coming out, he would put together like a crap, knockoff of it and he, and sometimes get it out before the the original you know he i believe he did the yeah. uh, the 76 king kong but he did the oh, yeah. he did orca he did didn't he do flash gordon in 80 i mean he did flash oh. gordon in 80 um he did uh oh god the the, the entire his almost his complete uh catalog is a train wreck although yeah. i have to admit a real fondness for manhunter the, mm. the Michael Mann uh, yeah. movie based on a uh, Harris's Red Dragon. Well, bringing in Michael Mann is never a bad idea. I would argue that's that was not, <laughs> you, you could go wrong there. Michael Mann for Manhunter, absolutely. David Lynch for Dune, that's no, a tougher sell. No, oh, he did. He wasn't. Yeah, I forgot he was behind that too. Oh Lord, Dune. Yeah, okay. Uh, hurry up, new Dune. Hurry up, please. I can't wait. Please. Um, <laughs> so, um, all right, we got to talk about. What about today? If if this movie were being made today, who would you want doing it? And again, I I was going to say Ridley Scott, totally forgetting that we have Kitbag coming along. So we're going to get, allegedly, yeah. our Ridley Scott Napoleon movie. But would you want him or you have somebody else in mind? Honestly, I mean, I, I mentioned Michael Mann, but he would be my pick. Michael Mann hmm. is a historian. Um, he was, you know, you look at his attention to detail in Last of the Mohicans. Oh man, um, yes, gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, he he's he's one of the few people I know who could really pay close attention to the detail and who could get the larger story right. He doesn't always. Uh, he did the what was the Johnny Depp movie, uh, the gangster one, Public Enemy. Oh yeah. Um, 
which is uh it's it's very it's it's got some beautiful shots but it's uh but it's disjointed i think he could pull this off he could take uh all of kubrick's data he could take that screenplay and he could say you know we need to power this up here we don't need these scenes yeah um i mean you know he, he who knows he he may even play up the the, the sequences in egypt uh for all yeah. you know because that that alone would be worthy of an entire film oh yeah um and you know and you probably you could probably make the case that you can get all of the you know all of the interesting material about napoleon out of just that sequence alone even though it's only got two pages in Kubrick's, uh, in Kubrick's yeah. uh, screenplay. You, re- you reminded me of something I want to ask you too. One thing I thought was actually kind of well done in his screenplay was, and, and I don't know if he even intended to do it, but he ends up giving a lot more attention. I, I, in fact, I'm going to argue this. I think the character that gets the most attention in this thing, other than Napoleon, is possibly the czar of Russia, Alexander. And I wouldn't have, yeah. I wouldn't have said that. That's interesting. Yeah. And, 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 you know, even that uh, I could see as being uh, just pure uh, cinematic gold. Yeah. So. Yeah, that yeah. I thought that worked. I thought he should have put even more emphasis on that. When, when I saw that relationship developing and how it was playing out in the script, I'm like, oh, unexpected. I want more of this. And, and I got it. And yes. it, was, it was really kind of <laughs> cool. So, okay. So, um how if he di- if he were still alive today and got to do it, how do you think he might do it differently than he would have done it back then? Would he have changed it, or would he still be making the same movie? Oh, that's a really good question. First of all, I think yeah, I, I read a I read an interview with one of his assistants once. He would have actually probably embraced CGI somewhat. Um, I, I think he still would have tried to get an exact idea of what the soil content and, and everything else was. <laughs> He probably, you know, just saying, well, no, this the, the texture is wrong or, or something. <laughs> but I think I, I think he would have tried to use uh, CGI for a to, to, to much greater effect. Um, he was never he was not afraid of CGI. Uh, perhaps he should have been, <laughs> but at the very least, he, he would have you know, where it was necessary. He would have used that. Well, he was an innovator, he and it was prob- a new tool. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, and we know this. That, I think. I'm sorry. We, I was, we, ahead, and we, sir. I'm sorry. It's my fault. We know that he admired uh, Jurassic Park. Yes. So yeah. That, I mean, that so, was a CGI I mean, fest. He, yeah, he's 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 going with something like that. He would have. Um, the, the problem is that he still would have used the same linear structure. Yeah. There wouldn't be a lot of dynamism to that. Um, there's a reason why uh, Coppola doesn't make movies anymore, and, and it's in part that he, he it's harder for him to try to keep up with uh, some of the other people who are doing it. Um, he also, honestly, the biggest problem he would run into is with uh, studios. You know, if you're if you're trying to put even a modest uh, historical epic together. You're going to, you know, you're going to run into a budget of at least a hundred million dollars. Yep. If you are stretching that over, you know, a ten episode Netflix series, you could, you know, that that's understandable. Trying to do this with a with a three hour movie, um, that's a bit of a challenge. Add to this, he wouldn't go to Netflix or anything like that. He would want he he would want to make sure that this was an actual movie. Mm-hmm. So. 
Yeah. Um, I also asked the question in our show notes, how would you do it? How would, what would you change maybe? And I've mentioned I would explain, expand things like St. Cloud a little bit just because I think they make yeah. good kind of showstoppers and reduce maybe the early years a little bit to a couple of flashbacks. I also think yeah. that he was probably wise. You get the sense from his script that he really wasn't going to spend a lot of time on the battles. I think for yeah. the Napoleonic battles, they're not that interesting. I think that you, and we've all seen enough Civil War and that era of movies anyway, you know. Yeah. I've seen all the cavalry charges in 1800s I really need to see. So <laughs> I, I honestly feel like, you know, you don't, I mean, the, the, the Waterloo movie was nothing but that, and I fall asleep. Yeah. It's like, you know, the, sure. the, two, the two Civil War movies that Ted Turner did, God, uh, Gods and Generals yeah. and, and Gettysburg. I mean, it's, you know, 30 minutes of character and two and a half hours of, of infantry charges and cavalry charges. I, I don't need that either. Right. I, I think he could have given us you know, a sense of what the battles were like and then cut back to the to the main characters again. What what would you do differently? I mean, no. I, that The only thing I would say with regards to the battles is just have a couple of very brief montages. Yeah. Um, this is where you could actually use voiceover to good effect. Keep it brief, though. Um, I happen to like voiceover in certain, in certain instances, and if you wanted to just uh, give us a couple of glimpses with a with a quick piece of, uh, you know, this happened and this happened, then I'd be okay with that. I would want to, if we were going to do this today, let's say I, you know, uh, let's say Netflix um, <laughs> decided to, to throw all wisdom to the wind and, and decided to put this in my lap. God help us all. Now, <laughs> first thing I would... I wouldn't do. T- I would want to turn this into a, a into a brief miniseries, not ten episodes, but maybe four or five. Okay. Um, I would concentrate heavily on everything. I, I wouldn't really pay much attention at all to his uh, to his childhood. I I I think that's. I, I don't have a lot of interest in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we want to do it in flashback, that's one thing. Um, but I would concentrate uh, a lot on the relationships, his relationship with the, the czar, his relationship with uh, Josephine. As it stands, these are interesting pieces. Um, and and they remain interesting pieces in the script itself, but they're too brief. Yep. And I don't think it, it I don't think he allows anything. He doesn't, he, he smothers his entire work by trying to overload us with data and i think what the, the biggest problem with that is that we don't we 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 lose some of the drama that i think is is inherent in all of this i think we are in perfect and, accord on this and the other thing is that uh this would allow us to to you know keep in mind when he wanted to when he did tests for the uniforms in 69 he had the uniforms made out of a uh, paper, uh, this really resilient paper. Yes. He, he, yeah. I, 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 and it looks great, but honestly, I'd rather have the, I'd rather <laughs> have the, 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 the cottons or whatever <laughs> sorts of things. I, it, it would have been uh, Peter Jackson's massive computer program, just making <laughs> thousands of French and Prussian and English soldiers in, in computer. I mean, I think that's where the CGI that you were talking about really would come in handy. Yeah. He saves so much oh, money. Yeah. Think about yeah. the opening scene you know, of Lord of the Rings and then turn that into French soldiers in Egypt or in uh, in Austria, you know. 
Oh man, it would have been gorgeous, amazing. Um, or get I'm, Ralph Bakshi to try to do it, you know, like '78 <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Oh wow! Oh gosh! I don't, I don't. I don't want to think of a 1970s rotoscoped animated Napoleon movie. I will lose my poop if I think about that. All right, um, I'm gonna unveil. Um, my own choice for who I think would be the perfect Napoleon actor right now in just a second. I do think Christian Clavier was really good. I mean, he wasn't perfect, but he was pretty darn good. Yeah. Um, I got. I, I got to say, I, I found this interesting quote from uh, from John from Jan Harlan. I guess his brother-in-law, Kubrick's brother-in-law, married to his sister. They said, "Was he ever yeah. tempted to return to this?" And he says, "Not seriously, because he knew he could not do justice to it." Uh, unless he had more screen time and a bigger budget. But more screen time would have meant television, and television was out of the question back then. But that's changed. And so he says that now uh, you could totally do it as a television thing, and Harlan is convinced the time is right at last. So his last quote from, from Jan Harlan, his quote is, TV now is technically superb, and a series of many hours and chapters is the ideal format for Stanley Kubik's Napoleon it will happen. Now, I would again say it will happen, except that Kitbag may push it back another decade. <laughs> so we may <laughs> we may be a hundred years old when we finally get it. But um, of course, all right. My choice for the actor to play in today would be Daniel Bruhl. I think Daniel Bruhl would be perfect. That is the actor who played Nicky Lauda uh, opposite yeah. Thor in the uh, in uh, Rush, the great. Formula One mm-hmm. movie. He plays Baron right. Zemo in the upcoming um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier and in Civil War, Marvel's Civil War movie, Captain right. America. I just think he's per- he's young enough to look like the young Elvis Napoleon we talked about, but he's got the gravitas yeah. to play an emperor. You know, don't, what do you think about that choice? That's actually uh, that's actually a really solid choice, and I think he could do a lot of that justice. Um, my own choices. I had two possibilities. Okay. One of them is a guy named Kyle Chandler, who's been in a variety of different things, like a Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, he, he has a kind of Robert Forrester look. Oh, he does. Um, yeah, that guy from Godzilla. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. And I, and I think he's got some, some gravity that he could bring to it. The other is, uh, is an actor by the name of Christopher Abbott, who play? I believe he played Yossarian in the Catch Twenty Two TV series, oh, and yeah. Um, yeah, and he was in uh, the Cronenberg's um, son made a movie called Possessor, uh, which is also really good. He has got the intensity. It, we were talking about Nicholson. Yeah, I know um, Kubrick was thinking of Nicholson uh, for this role. He's got the same sort of Nicholson intensity, but without all the Nicholson baggage. Yeah. Yeah, so, no, I, I can I, see it. I, I, yeah, I urge everyone to I Google mean, these people. Because be... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're exactly. right. Exactly. Well, you know who yeah. comes up when I Google him though is also Kit Harrington. You know, dang, Kit Harrington wouldn't be terrible. Bam! There you go. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I joked with my wife, and and she said, "Can we do Chris Hemsworth? Does Napoleon take his shirt off?" And, <laughs> That would be an interesting Napoleon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know that's that's Let, that's Napoleon play. dynamite in an entirely different way. Oh so. lord, he could play uh, Wellington, and the on the other side, it could be a, it could be a he and Brule could be a reunion of 
of Rush, <laughs> but he, he's uh, he's uh, Wellington this time instead of uh, uh, what's his name, the the Hunt, Alan, yeah. uh, James Hunt. Yeah, exactly. All right, last thing here before we wrap up. Unless you have any other thing you want to throw out there, I at the beginning this was supposed to be called the greatest movie never made. And Kubrick himself said it would be the, his best. He was, it, it was def, either he said it would be the best movie ever or his best movie ever, which eh, might be the same thing. Um, sure. If it had been made, how great would it have been and how would we remember it today? Or, and let me throw this I, out to you, or is it a deal like um, the Dune movie from the 60s that we didn't get and thank God? Yodorowsky. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with the second one, mm. honestly. I, I Now, hear me out. I hate to say that because, yeah, like I said, because we didn't get Napoleon, we uh, we got instead Clockwork Orange. We got um, we got Barry Lyndon. Uh, I'm great. I'm grateful that we got those. I think Napoleon would have been. Um, I know 2001 was considered uh, sort of Kubrick's folly by several uh, critics at the time. <laughs> um, I think Napoleon would have been. Kubrick's folly more so. Um, this was a this was his dream project. This was very uh, this was the the thing he really wanted to work on. Um, you don't you don't spend two years of research on something that's just kind of yeah yeah this seems like a gas I, I can do that. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it's also because he was so close to it and because he was so um, he was so single minded because he was you know, obsessed with it for as long as he was, I think he probably, it's very likely he would have done things that probably would have hampered him and hampered his career as a consequence. Yeah. I, th- I think that's probably true. I still want to see it. I still hope somebody yeah. makes it. And in the meantime, I'm really looking forward to kit bag. I'm hoping it gives us something along the uh, similar lines and a sense of what it would have been like maybe if Ridley Scott had done it. Mm-hmm. So um, oh, so absolutely. we'll see. Derek, it's yeah. been an absolute pleasure. Great job. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. We're going to take a quick break here and thank our people who keep our show on the air. When we come back, we're going to be joined by John Ringer to talk a little bit more about this from a different perspective, and we will see you guys in just a minute. We have to thank the folks that keep these programs on the air. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can join their ranks. Just go to www.patreon.com and search for White Rocket or Plexico. Or you can just go to www.plexico.net, P-L-E-X-I-C-O.net, and click on the Become a Patron button. Here are the fine folks that are keeping our programs going currently. They include Chris and Clinton Stewart. Carl Von Drunker, Bart Lindsay, Bradley Blackman, Chris Usher, Gary Grant, Logan Chilton, Phil Amthor, Richard Stevens, Steve Trawick, Susan Trawick, Tom Anderson, Willie Carden, Ann Kangian, AU Falling Up, Ben Bloodworth, Clay Henson, Dan Thompson, Daniel Odom, David Evers, David Hegler, Emmanuel Seaman, George Gaston, Jacob and Robin Fleming, James Greenwell, Joel Beckham, John Otsuki, Catherine England, Kevin Smith, Mickey B, Phil Davis, Preston Settle, Reynolds Wolf, Rich Reimer, Steve Harlan, Timothy, WDE Richie, Wes Atkinson, William Morgan, Wilson Beard, Winston Body, Alex Nguyen, Blake Heron, Boris the Tiger, Cato the Barner, Chris the Hilton, Chris Thrash, Colby Butler, Danny Flack, as well as Darius Benton, David Simpson, Di Bama, not a moment too soon, Earl Ricks, Eric Mahan, Hugh Anderson, Josh Teal, Kevin Kenoy, 
Kevin Mahan, Lane Middleton, Melissa Blackstone, Mike Finley, Algo Rhythm, Papa Todd, Patrick Williams, Randall Walker, Rob Morgan, Ross Russell Milling, Shannon Butson, Sarah Hines, Sasquatch, Shane Bailey, Snowdog, Stephen Houston, Tim Pittman, Tony Perry, Auburn Elvis, Ben Amos, Brandon Sisson, Brandon Smith, Chris Como, Darren Pyle, David Smiley, Donnie Reynolds, James Taylor, Jason the Weasel Skull Albrecht, John Stubbs, John Zavachin, Joey Miller, Joseph Iliff, Justin Bean, Lawrence Kane, Mark Squire, Matthew Flowers, Mick Vijakana, Nicholas Craig, Paul Bankson, Robert Drain, Robert O. Sammons, and finally Russell Souther, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Spanky, Stephen Thompson, Trevor Johnson, Kenneth Brent Rains, Brent Rumble, Chris, plus our one-time and anonymous donors. We thank you all. So once again, go to www.plexico.net, P-L-E-X-I-C-O.net, and we appreciate it. Now, here is my regular co-host for this and other programs, John Ringer, to talk a little bit more about the historic Napoleon and what we would like to see in a Napoleon film. So, John, I figured I'd bring you in on this conversation, too. We've been talking about Napoleon and how Stanley Kubrick might have done a movie like that. But I want to get your sense as a history guy like me, somebody that's interested in particular in military history and all these sorts of things. How do you view Napoleon? I mean, there you know, some people look at him as like a great villain in history, like a Hitler before Hitler. Some people look at him as a great, almost like a Renaissance man, you know, great at everything and kind of a victim of some politics and all. Where do you fall in terms of kind of how you think of him historically? Good question. I, I mean, I think I think of him as important historically just because he was coming in that time period between, you know, monarchies and kind of the change in Europe and how it was run and operated, right? Hmm. And and also kind of the the imperial age moving into the more the modern age and how things work. But also, I I think of him because of, you know, the way I've kind of studied him, but viewed him as a military leader and a national leader who you know, had the skill to be a, a battlefield general, but also somebody who advanced a lot of other things in society that, you know, maybe in a lot, and I'm not saying he created all those things or came up with all the things, but he created a society where kind of some new ideas that have lingered on could flourish, right? Or could emerge. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's the way I think of him. Do you think of him primarily more as a military figure or a political figure, a social figure or some I- combination or what? I mean, I think of him, again, this is probably in the big picture, it's probably not the correct way, but I think of him as a military figure just because of the way that I have, the most that I have learned about Napoleon is as a general, right? And his career in the military and then his, all the different battles he fought and his successes and how, you know, he took France to the heights it never had before militarily and defeated kind of the combined might of the rest of Europe, you know, again and again. And so I think of him, I think of him that way, but there is a lot more there. But in my mind, the, to me, those are the, the big moments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but also think about him in terms of just kind of the uh, an important historical figure that had these big dramatic moments, right? I mean, the exile, coming you know to elba the coming back the you know the hundred days waterloo it's i mean waterloo literally means like <laughs> great defeat in in common perception and people don't have any idea what was going on with that battle but they know what that term means right so um that's right i, I think i mean i think of him in terms of that 
you know, like that kind of thing clearly shows the lasting significance of, of defeating him. He wanted to be remembered as Napoleon the Great along the lines of Constantine the Great and Alexander the Great, a couple of others maybe. Would you give him that title or did he earn it or not? He controlled the entire mainland continent of Europe, <laughs> but you know, for a brief moment, right? I mean, a few years. Yeah. Um, not any kind of extended long-term dynasty or anything like that. So I, I get the comparisons in his mind, but I don't, I don't know about that one. Yeah. I, and I talked with Derek one that a couple of, uh, a couple of Napoleon biographers had a debate, I guess at Oxford a couple of years ago. And uh, one of them had actually named his book Napoleon the Great, which I said is basically trolling the British because they don't want to hear that. And so he named the British edition Napoleon the Great and they had a debate over whether or not to call him that. And at the end of the debate, the British crowd at Oxford voted yes, Napoleon the Great, which I was like, wow, that's, that's quite a persuasive argument. You can get the British to go along with that. I, w- I was impressed. So, Has any single country... You know, not a, not an alliance of a bunch of countries, but any kind of single country taken over Europe you know, in the way that he did, and in, and with the speed and the, and the dramatic nature of the way he did it, and it's I don't think anybody has. So, yeah, I I mean the the thing that always stands out to me about it is that you know there's like the first half of his career as a leader and a military figure where he seemed to be promoting the ideals of the French Revolution, which. Mm-hmm. until taken to excess, were mostly good, I think. And he seemed to be about liberation. But then there was always this element of hypocrisy. And I say up front, he's my favorite historical figure, and I admire a lot about him. But I also freely uh, acknowledge the downsides, which is like he would he would drive away like the Bourbon dynasty despots, you know. But then he'd put like his little brother in charge. He, 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 he seemed a little bit tone deaf to the idea that because a country didn't want some king bossing them around, they also didn't want a Bonaparte bossing them around. You know, he <laughs> he traded you know he traded in one dictator for another, and and then he didn't. Then he was surprised when they would revolt, like in Spain, you know, or in Austria or whatever uh, parts of Italy. So I don't know. I mean, he you know, and and then of course there's the famous story with with Beethoven having all having followed him, just like you know he was a figure that people followed in the news. Uh, all over Europe, and especially the people in Germany, because there was no Germany. You know, there were a lot of little Germanies. They were all fascinated by Napoleon because they thought, here's a guy that maybe can help unify Germany, which is what they always wanted. And he was very appreciative of, of Napoleon at first, Beethoven was, and wrote Eroica, you know, the, the third symphony that one of his, probably I would argue, one of his two greatest symphonies about, it was called Bonaparte. And then, like, right after he finished writing the third symphony and wrote Bonaparte on the title page, one of his friends came in and said, Bonaparte has just uh, declared himself emperor. And Napoleon went, I mean, uh, Beethoven went over and ripped the title page off and he scratched out the name Bonaparte so hard it went through the paper. We have it. And it's got a hole in it there where it says, you see, <laughs> you know, dedicated to, and then it's all scratched out, you know, whatever. So. <laughs> He uh, he was not happy. Uh, Beethoven wasn't, but that's why I'm using that symphony as the as the music for this episode. Yeah, so I mean, how how do you kind of compare? Because er, I, I, I always say there's like the he's like Elvis. There's the young Elvis in the black leather singing <laughs> Jailhouse Rock, and then there's the Elvis in the white stretch pants at in Vegas with the rhinestones, you know, 
with the big sunglasses. And there, there really are, Napoleon's the same way. There's the young Napoleon that's a dashing figure that's crossing the Alps on the horse. And then there's the, the older Napoleon that's declaring himself emperor, marrying the Austrian princess, and you know ultimately losing at Waterloo and, and also at, at uh, the Battle of Nations that ended up in Elba. So how, how do you kind of feel about those two different versions? Is that just a human <laughs> thing that we get spoiled? <laughs> No, it is. I mean, he clearly changed, as you said. Um, I think he was, you know, more open to reforms and and progressive ideas. And then he, I think he, as a lot of not just political leaders, but a lot of incredibly successful people, but especially political leaders who've had the kind of success he had, he viewed himself, I think, in kind of a divine right sort of way that. This is the way it sh- I clearly am, am meant to be the emperor of France uh, and of Europe. And so I think he, you know, when you have so much success, it kind of blinds you to the, to like you're saying, to these other ideas. And you kind of lose sight of where you were. Or you've kind of come far from shore or whatever. And and I do think that happened. And I, but uh, So I think there was clearly the kind of the young artillery officer you know, person in the early career. And then he became kind of the, you know, the pampered emperor a little bit more in the second half, your, your late Elvis stage. Yeah. And the other comparison that's interesting to me is that people compare him to Hitler. I've never agreed with that because obviously there's a lot of difference between the French Revolution and the Nazis. I mean, it's just night and day. The French Revolution mostly espoused positive ideals, and the Nazis were the exact opposite. But militarily, I think it's interesting that in both cases, they were able to conquer continental Europe. And in both cases, the British and the Russians were holding out, right? Well, the he, he conquered Russia. Well, he, it's complicated. He and Alexander had a deal, and then Alexander kind of backed out on it, the czar. And so he felt like he had to go conquer Russia, which was a dumb land war in Asia, never... Poor, poor decision. Poor decision, right. It, it got them both. It got them both, no doubt about it. But you know, on the, on the one hand, you had Britain holding out both times. And on the other hand, you had this central European power, France or Germany, invading Russia. And I would even go for extend the analogy a little bit further and say the Peninsular War in Spain kind of leading <laughs> up to both. It's you know, makes it the analogy work. Wow, that's true. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, you had Franco, and then you, and you had the uh, you had Joseph down there, and the the Spanish ulcer he called it, and that's where the British practiced fighting him. So that when he fought in when they fought at uh, at Waterloo, uh, Wellington knew how to fight him because they'd been practicing against him in in Spain all those years. When when Napoleon wasn't there, he had his lieutenants down there. But um, yeah, you just don't invade Russia, do you? It's just not a good idea. Especially not unprepared for the wintertime. Like yeah. you got to have a plan. It, it, this is the thing that everybody always forgets, whether it's the Germans <laughs> or, the, or the French under Napoleon. Russia's really, 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 really big. And, and cold. You're not, <laughs> and you're not going to get there <laughs> soon. So you got to have a plan for how you're going to deal with the winter. Yeah. Yeah. Hitler ran out of gas and uh, Napoleon ran out of horses more or less. They weren't prepared to deal with with that with the distances and the weather. It's just yeah, it's crazy how Russia kind of sorts them out. They just can't they just and, and it's funny too because in both cases they really wanted to defeat Britain. 
I guess Hitler was, it's funny, Hitler was more about defeating the Russians and Britain was a nuisance, whereas Napoleon really wanted to defeat the British and the Russians were a nuisance. But in both cases, it ended with them plowing into Russia and then regretting it later. So, And, uh, and in both cases, the British fleet was the difference and the reason why they could never invade. That's true. Yeah, you cross, have to cross that uh, the moat. Britain has a really nice moat. <laughs> we have an even better one, of course. We weren't really a figure in the. And it's fact. Well, that's. I was going to say we weren't really a, a factor in the Napoleonic Wars. But it's interesting when you think back about American history that everything that the first probably eh, three or four presidents had to deal with, so much of it was because of Napoleon. You know, I mean the the French Revolution happened in part because the United States bankrupted France helping us win our independence. Mm-hmm. And then Napoleon takes over. And then, you know, Jefferson, of course, had to deal with Napoleon and bought the middle of the United States mm-hmm. from him. And then, of course, ultimately Madison has to deal with him because the War of 1812 mainly happened because it was part of the Napoleonic Wars, you know. So it's not like Britain was going to fight us otherwise. They were mad at us over not being on their side completely against against Napoleon. Mm-hmm. So when, when, uh, when Napoleon went to St. Helena, the the U.S. and Britain have gotten along fine ever since. That was the key. Well, in terms of movies and stuff, and by the way, I just saw today, I just saw today that Netflix has got the rights to the Abel Gant silent Napoleon movie from back in like the th- 20s or whenever, 20s or 30s, and they're going to remaster it. And I'm just like, that's cool. Have you ever seen it? No. It's like three hours long, black and white, silent movie, and it gets him up through being a general for the first time and going to Italy the first time, the Italian campaign. He's not even, it doesn't even get to the coup, doesn't even get to him being consul. It's mm-hmm. still when he's a general. They just ran out of money and time. They, were, they didn't want to make like a nine-hour movie. It, it needed to be like as long as the Lord of the Rings trilogy to get the whole thing in. So I'm kind of like, on the one hand, that's cool because it's a neat thing. But on the other hand... Who wants to sit through three hours of a silent movie getting Napoleon from birth to like when he was 22? <laughs> it's, I, no. you know, I did no. once, but I didn't realize it didn't need. I'm like, you know, I'm like two and a half hours into that thing a few years ago. And I'm like, okay, we need to move things along because he, he's not even in charge of France yet. It's two and a half hours, man. Yeah. They haven't left the Shire yet. How did they get the ring in this movie? That's right. Yeah, it's like if, uh, yeah, it's right. It's like if the Fellowship of the Ring didn't even get them out of the Shire. You're like, you got to take that ring and go, brother. Come on. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, it's been said, I've mentioned this previously, that, that, um, Napoleon is up there with like Abraham Lincoln as the historical figure that's been portrayed in the most movies and TV shows. And yet, I think you and I could probably agree, never really well. So no. what what do you think about that? And what's probably your favorite portrayal or what you think is like the most accurate that comes to your mind? I don't have a one that I love. I mean, I, I, I agree with the sentiment. I, there's out there, but I think, I think there's been a lot more quality stuff made about Lincoln. I mean, the Spielberg movie, Lincoln, if we had something similar, just about a piece of Napoleon, that would be fascinating. Yeah. But I, in, you know, my impression is it's not there. And so I, you know, I want to see it happen. And we, you know, there's this kind of scramble for intellectual property and good things to make movies on. And I feel like there's plenty of Napoleon related material that somebody could adapt and make a, you know, a movie or a big high end series about him. Absolutely. It's just shocking. It's never really been done right. I guess the, the, the French and the British, I guess, together did the, um, 
the Christian Clavier miniseries about 15 years ago. I mentioned this in the main mm-hmm. part of our show. And it was okay, but they always kind of they always gravitate toward the older Napoleon. Even when he's young, they have an actor that's like older playing him because they want to get like the 50-year-old Napoleon. And you know, I keep saying that um you need to get a dashing young actor to play him. And you can put a little makeup on him to make him look older, but the young Napoleon looks needs to be dynamic and attractive and and, and and charismatic so that people, audience, will understand why everybody that was such a, you know, devotee of him back then felt that way. It's hard to understand when you see, like, Marlon Brando as Napoleon, you know, or <laughs> or Ian Holm was in one recent, you know, a few years ago. And no. like, that's no, not no, – no, and somebody no. was saying, like um, – Danny DeVito. And I'm like, that totally misses the point. If you th- just, Everybody focuses on short guy. They don't think about, like, charismatic rock star that conquered, you know, conquered half the world. All right, here's my casting. You ready? Yeah. Daniel Bruhl. Yes, yes, exactly. I 100% agree. He would be perfect. And he doesn't need to get any older. They need to go ahead and do it now. So I'm saying you could do it now, do the younger stuff now. And then you could make make up him a little, you know, in the later parts. Yes, absolutely. That he would be would be fantastic. Yeah, he's got the right stature, the right look. He's still young enough. He's charismatic, good actor. Loved him in uh, Rush, and he's mm-hmm. he's in the Marvel stuff. I think he's going to be in Falcon and Winter Soldier. And yeah, that would be. I think he would be ideal, absolutely perfect. And in the Kubrick script. Interestingly enough, I would say the the character other than Napoleon and Josephine that gets a lot of screen time unexpectedly is Tsar Alexander. Kubrick pay, pays a lot of attention to them getting together and kind of having a bromance, you know, and then Alexander <laughs> kind of turning his back on him. So the czars were different and yeah. their expectations were different. They were trying to be modern European rulers, but they weren't. Uh, and the, and the, certainly things at home weren't that way, and he was trying to help drag, you know, like a lot of them trying to drag Russia into modern times, yeah. kicking and screaming. Absolutely. Yeah, and they make an interesting contrast because Napoleon is clearly like uh, more advanced in a lot of ways, and yet he's still seen as a commoner. That I mean, that was the that was always mm. to me the problem Napoleon suffered from more than any is it wasn't so much you know he's portrayed as like this warmonger who starts all this stuff, and I always felt it was more like. He was always on the defensive because these other countries couldn't stand the thought of him being the leader of France. They He just didn't have the proper breeding in their eyes to be what he was trying to be. And so they, they would stab him in the back at first opportunity. And it seems to me like most of the battles he fought were when he would have a deal with the uh, the emperor of Austria or with the czar or with whoever, and then they'd turn around and stab him in the back because they just couldn't bear, they couldn't stand him being who he was. And well, that's and it's not just it's not just that it's that if you let him get away with it, mm. then everybody thinks they could that you don't need you know special families running the country. Anybody could do yes. it, and so you had to they had to root that idea out. That's a good point. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Yeah, that. Yeah, if you if you acknowledge Napoleon is what he claims to be, then suddenly you might have to acknowledge that this other Russian guy is should take over Russia. Like, you know, the eventually you get like a Lenin or a Stalin out of that, but they were trying to forestall that. So yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Any other thoughts about Napoleon before we wrap up? Just in my mind, if we're gonna if you're gonna do a movie or a you know a high end show, whatever else, to me, as I said at the beginning, like I come at it from the perspective of kind of the military history thing. Mm. So I want 
some of the big battles. I don't want him as a montage kind of Napoleon marches across Europe and there's some cannons firing. I want to see <laughs> the brilliance. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I want to, I want to see why this or why? Jenna. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, but you want uh, to see why he was considered a genius. Yes. Not just, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Don't, don't just say, Oh, he won at Austerlitz, yay! And here he is getting his rewards. No, show what did he do there that was that was so memorable? Yes, and again, it's a time before modern communications, when the leader, the general, had to see the battlefield and sense it from the, you know, the maps and the reports he was getting, and then move and allocate his forces to by messenger. And he did it faster and better than his peers, and that's why he won so much. And 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 also. He was great at kind of the logistics side of it too, yeah. and, and and then things like his you know the concentrations of cannons and that kind of thing. So I, or of artillery. So I'm interested in a portrayal that shows that side of him, and not just as a him riding a, a horse across the ruins of the battlefield after it's <laughs> over or whatever. As long as they don't go so far as they did in that awful Waterloo movie where Rod Steiger plays him, because I call that horse porn, cavalry porn, because. <laughs> it, that's all it is. And you need a balance. Okay. Yes. We don't want just uh, <laughs> pictures of charging horses with music God. swelling in the background as the cannons fire. No, we need some bigger picture. That's all that movie is, is two and a half hours of cavalry charges and cannons firing. And you're just like, I again, that doesn't tell me anything. That tells me no more than just a montage, like you said, Wood. We need to be in his head. We need to we need to understand. And 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 it's there's a balance between granular detail with no explanation and no guidance versus totally skimming over it. There's somewhere in between, right? Yes. All right. Thanks a bunch to Derek and John for coming aboard and helping make this episode so cool. I'm looking forward to whatever we get about Napoleon in the future, but I hope it's really cool, and I can't wait to see the final version that Spielberg puts together if he ever gets around to putting it together. All right, the Rocket's going to get on out of here for another episode. We will see you guys down the road. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.